Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, and welcome to 10% Happier. I'm Dan Harris. I've never met George Mumford until today. Very happy to meet you. But I've been following his work for a long time, and he is an impressive dude. Uh, He has taught mindfulness and meditation to some of the greatest athletes of all time. Uh, People with names like Jordan, Shaq, Kobe. In partnership with the legendary coach Phil Jackson, uh, George taught meditation to the Bulls and the Lakers in their prime. He's now working with the New York Knicks. A little bit of a trickier story there. We'll get into that. Uh, His backstory about how he came to the practice is quite moving, which we will talk about uh, in full. And I should also say, by way of introduction, George has written a book called The Mindful Athlete. Uh, Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. Same here. I've been following you for a long time. Um, so let me ask you the question that I ask everybody to start with, which right. is how did you get into this thing? How did you get into meditation? I got into meditation because I was experiencing a lot of chronic pain after when I got in recovery. Um, chronic pa- physical pain? Physical pain, migraine headaches specifically, and lower back pain. I've had back issues probably. I've been going to chiropractic since 1975, so I had a lot of back pain and, and migraine headaches and once I stopped using drugs and alcohol it was there and I had to figure out a way of dealing with it without the use of narcotics or or you know I would use some medication if I had to but I wanted to learn how to, to manage the pain and so I got into I was in a HMO and they had this new program it was cutting edge um, when they were getting into the mind-body process, and Joan Borisenko, who at the time was one of three psychoneuroimmunologists, had this program called Stress Management. And, and the whole basis of the program is educating people around the mind-body process and also introducing modalities like stress reduction, uh, meditation, mindfulness, you know, yoga, but mainly just reading and educating ourselves about how the mind-body process works, you know, like the the autonomic nervous system, how that works. And the idea that some of these uh, parts of our experience, like heart rate and all of those, and and respiratory rate and stuff like that, which were considered involuntary, could be controlled by just doing things. So involuntary um, aspects of our nervous system and brain can be controlled by doing something as simple as being still and just watching your breath or focusing on one thing at a time. So it's an indirect way of uh, controlling these processes that we thought for a long time were were uncontrollable. Let me just back up for a second. The pain was the result of what? Was it an athletic injury or just? Well, I think, yes, athletic injury, but, but migraine is stress-related. Right. What were, what were you were you in a stressful job? No, I think it was. Uh, I I think interestingly enough, I, I've always been under some kind of influence, and I think the stress was just life, you know, dealing with life on life's terms. But also, probably being in a job where it wasn't really me, really not knowing, not knowing who I was, kind of being a pseudo self, doing what I was supposed to be doing, working in a certain place and when I got clean I f- felt like I I woke up and all of a sudden I realized I've been living in fantasy most of my life. What what, what kind of work were you doing? I was a financial analyst working in a, for um defense industry 
and you know I was really good at it, but it wasn't who I was. And how bad did the self-medication become? Oh, I was addicted to heroin and alcohol for a lot of, for a lot of years. You were addicted to heroin and yet fully functioning. Yeah, I was what they call a functional addict, alcoholic. Not only just an alcoholic, but also a heroin addict. Yeah, so, yeah. So that's 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 pretty hardcore. Hardcore in, in that it's a real, it's a very serious pair of addictions, but also to be functioning as a, a financial analyst. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could be. You know, let's just say I was barely functioning at that point because it, it breaks down, so you start losing things, and um, but I was, you know, I was very. I was very functional. I knew that I wanted to work, and I would. I don't know how I did it. It's amazing how I did it, but I did it. I was working and still active. And then once I got clean, then I could start to turn my life around and to do things. But I was fortunate. I was one of these because I guess there's some advantages to being a perfectionist, and that's one of them. Um, I'm a recovering perfectionist now, but <laughs> back then it was. I, I I don't know how I did it. But I did it. Did did what? Get get clean? Well, now I get clean, but I was active and, and working, keeping oh, the I job. See. How and why did you get clean? Well, what happens eventually is you get really, really, you, you reach a bottom. I call it the elevator strategy. Some people, you know, you can get off on the fourth, fourth floor or the fifth floor. Some people have to go all the way down to the sub-basement. And I saw that I was going, I had an, actually, I, I as I reflect on it, because I haven't talked about it, I've been I'll be clean, and I've been clean for thirty-one and a half years. Uh, congratulations! I say that is no small achievement. Yeah, thank you. So I have to reflect back on on what it was like, but mostly I had I hit a spiritual bottom. I just wasn't happy, and I, you get to a point where you can't get high and you can can't not get high. Mm. So it's what we call bottom, and so. On April Fool's Day, 1984, a friend of mine came by who I used to get high with, and he was clean. He took me to a meeting, and that totally changed everything. I realized, oh, I don't have to do this. And so then that's what happened, but I was really sick. You know, I actually had, I was walking around with a strep infection for about, I don't know how many days, but I had a 103-degree temperature and went to the hospital, and, they, you know, they took care of the infection I had. But it really hit. It started hitting me that you know I'm going to die if I keep doing this, and so um, I got to a point where I saw there was a way out, and then that motivated me. And then I started going to those meetings, even though I was continuing to, to drink and get high a little bit. But at some point, I couldn't do it anymore. It was like okay, so I went into a detox for 21 days, and when I came out, you know, the George that went in was no longer. The George I was, I had to come out a different George. I knew that that if the same George that went in came out, then things wouldn't change. But mm-hmm. but I changed and saw my street for the first time. I said wow. So I was really seeing clearly after you know the treatment and and realizing that it's possible for me to have a life, a full life without the use of drugs and alcohol, which I never uh, that never occurred to me before. And people may surmise this from your accent, but this was all playing out in the Boston area. In the Boston area, yes, Boston. <laughs> yes, this is accurate. Yes, but I, in defense of Boston, that is my hometown. Yes, you actually live in Newton, Massachusetts, which is where I grew up. You right. live uh, less than a mile away from my parents' house. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so back to your your story of uh, after you got clean, you ended up in this program 
which where you were introduced to meditation. I was introduced to meditation, and it was interesting because after the first time we tried it, I'm looking around saying, I don't understand what happened. I don't get what people were talking about. But I, me being a, a perfectionist, I kept at it, and and I read every book she had on the civil syllabus, and that's how I started getting. And then I'd look at a, read a book and then look at the back of the book, and it would say other books, suggested readings, and I would read those, and I just read as much as I could about, you know, uh, the mind-body process, but also I was very interested in nonverbal communication. How do I know sometimes I would say one thing and do something else? I really wanted to start to understand what motivates us and and, and how we express ourselves. How do I know, and I did therapy, I became a therapist for a little bit, and how do I know when I'm working with somebody, especially recovering people, they're really good at telling you what you want to hear, but then their behavior is totally different. So I st- got very interested in knowing how do I know what which way do I go? Do I go with the 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 verbs or the the voice or the words or do I go with the behavior? And I learned how to say to watch what they do and not listen too much to what they say. Because me being who I was, I was able to live a double double life and say things and but do some do other things. So mm. even though. I ended up teaching other people. It was more about me understanding who I was and why I did things and how I, once I, how I got clean and said, okay, so how do other people get motivated? What motivates people to do something that they've been trying to do for a long time and aren't able to do to at some point get to a point where they can do it? Or And so I became very interested in learning about people because the more I learned about people, the more I learned about myself. So was your interest in meditation primarily um, a motivation to help other people get clean, or was it because you saw something in the course of personally meditating that struck you as intriguing? Yes. it was Initially, it was for me to deal with the pain, but then it, it went way beyond that. And I realized that I feel, you know, it's being connected to something greater than yourself, uh, being able to know the truth and let the truth set you free, that it was the ultimate st- stress reducer. It's really understanding how how this mind-body process works and how the universe works. And if there are natural laws, then it makes sense if I live in accord with those natural laws, I'm going to be happy and I'm going to live life more fully. And so it, it felt good, basically. Okay, you said several things in there that I want to dive in on. I don't want to forget any of them, so I'm just doing an inventory in my head. But let me start with how did meditation help you with pain, physical pain? Yes, yes. Well, how did it help me with pain? Because one of the things that would happen is I'll say I had a, well, the way it helped me with the migraine was I got to the point where I can observe the migraine coming on. And when it gets to a certain point, I don't care what kind of medication they gave me or whatever, I was hurting for certain. But if I and I started to see how it arose, then I could nip it in the bud. I could say, okay, usually when I have migraine headache, I'm trying too hard and I'm doing too many things. So I would just go lay down and just breathe, and and then I would visualize my my whole body breathing. And what happens with a migraine is you get you get. Um, you know, you're not getting enough oxygen, and the muscles spasm, and they press against the nerves. So I started understanding that, and I could nip it in the bud, and if I could catch it before it got to a full-blown, I could actually manage it. So it was just this awareness and seeing, okay, I'm trying too hard to back off. 
stop, you know, calm down. You're doing too many things. Just create some space, time out, put it aside, and then go breathe and relax, go lay down and just chill. And by doing that, I realized that most of the time I could, I could actually, it was telling me something. So I started to realize that the body tells me things if I can just be still and know, be still and listen, and really listen to the body. And, and that's what I got into. And it, not only did it get me beyond the pain, but it started, I started noticing that I was getting clarity about certain things. Like? Like I have pain, and then I'm, when someone asked me how am I doing, I said I was in pain all day. Well, I wasn't in pain all day. It was a little bit of pain, but that's all I remembered. Hmm. And I focused on that, and that's what I got. But if I realize, okay, I have pain, but it actually moves around. It, it, it might go up, and then it, it'll go down, and it might go up. But if I just watch it, creating space, and just observe it as sensations arising and passing away, that I wasn't identified with it, and I wasn't trying to push it away subtly or identifying with it. So I started to see that I could observe it without being identified with it. I'm just going to drill down a, a little bit because I, I think a lot of our listeners may not have ever meditated. So, right. so if you're s- sitting in med- – well, you can meditate anywhere That's in right. any way. But right. just say you're sitting in formal meditation. Your eyes are closed. You're noticing the pain. Right. And this pain that – you tell a whole story around, which is, I've got this migraine. Migraines right. are never going to go away. What's the matter with me that I've got this migraine? All this terrible stuff always happens to me. Right. This migraine is so solid and is right. my pain and belongs to me. But instead, with meditation, you're allowed to you kind of step out of the traffic yes. and you view it as, oh, this is this changing set of sensations that sometimes fade, sometimes get worse. If, right. I, don't have to, if I don't try to control them, they don't control me. Yes, it's what Viktor Frankl talked about, between, stim- between stimulus and response, um, there is a space where we have the power to choose and to transform. So what I'm creating is a stim- space between stimulus and response. So instead of stimulus-response being together, uh, by being able to s- step back in a relaxed, alert receptivity, I can just observe things so that I create space. And in that space, I can choose how I'm going to react, which is knee-jerk, which means no, no, you know, no intention other than a reactivity. Mindlessly. Mindlessly. Or I can choose my response saying, okay, given this, what's the best way to respond to this? And then even in that responding, if I don't get it right, I still can learn from that. But there's a space where I'm actually pausing and thinking about what am I going to do and is it skillful or is it unskillful? Is it helpful or is it not helpful? Is it taking me where I want to go or is it not taking me where I want to go? And there's a lot of power in this ability. In my book, I refer to it as the eye of the hurricane. You know, in the eye of the hurricane, there's just blue sky and it's quiet and still. And even though there's this turmoil and all of the whirlwinds and all the chaos around that, we have that inside of us, that still small voice. They talk about um, Joseph Campbell in um, Power of Myth talked about the quiet place, that when an athlete acts out of that quiet place or a dancer, that it's a totally different experience than, than not acting out of that space and being hung up and dealing with stress and anxiety and all of those other emotions, fear mostly, because you are identified with what's happening instead of realizing that what happens to you is not you. You know, whatever you observe is not you. It's just what you're observing. But we identify. We got like sticky mind. We just 
okay, this bottle is me. Or this pain is me. This pain is me. And even chronic pain is a problem because there's a natural reaction to that. So you just, it's judgmental. So you can just see the sensation Mm -hmm. and identify what it feels like. Is it pulling, twisting, or that sort of thing? So you start to use language in a way where it's, it's allowing it to be there without all of these preconceived associative thinking and abstract thinking that's involved with the word usage, like pain. To seeing the pain, and I and I did an experiment when I went to the dentist, and don't tell me you said no novocaine. No, no, I didn't say no novocaine. Okay. But when I was getting um, a filling, when I heard the sound of the drill, there's a I could there's a whole memory that goes with that, and I'm crunching up and doing all this, even though that's not what's happening now. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness mm-hmm. creates space where you say, okay, that was then, this is now. Can you just be present to what is? And I noticed it was just a little pressure. But at the whole time, my body was reacting. But by me just continuing to breathe and not get into the story about it, I started to see, oh, okay, it's not, even though sometimes they hit the nerve and you jump, every time you hear the sound, it's not mean, that doesn't mean that you're going to hear that, have the nerve pain with it. But that's how chronic pain gets gets established is because we're, we're, we're relying on memory more than we're relying on what's actually happening now. And the brain doesn't know the difference between what we think about and what we experience. So, so we're rerunning these old tapes. We're running these old tapes. So the memory of it is what's really present, not the actual activity that's happening in the moment. So you mentioned your book, as I said before, it's called The Mindful Athlete, and I want to talk about your work with athletes. And, right. But I have not forgotten that you said a bunch of stuff earlier that I wanted to, 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 to drill down on. And one of the things you said was something about, and I don't know if I'm going to get this exactly correct, but something about... Starting to meditate puts you in touch with the laws of the universe. What, yes. What did you mean by that? What I mean by that is, this is what Einstein said is the most significant question we have to ask and answer is whether the universe is friendly or unfriendly. And so for me and my upbringing and everything, the universe was unfriendly. And when it's unfriendly, you are going to use all of your resources to either destroy, remove, or deny experience. But when you see the universe as friendly, then you will use all your resources to align yourself with the way things are, with the the way the laws of the universe, like this gravity. It's not personal. It's just a law. And if you live according to gravity, you're probably gonna be okay. <laughs> and it's a law about what you what you think you become. So if you're alphalizing, then that's going to be your experience. Alphalizing? Awfulizing. Awfulizing. So everything is catastrophizing. So if you're focused on, and we don't just think about something that happens. We think about it, and then there's a image with it, and then there's a story going on, that what we call inner talk or, or self-talk that's going on, and it's a scenario being thought out. This is what we do. But we can do the same thing with something positive. We can experience ourselves as being open, and and being loving, and we can play that scenario out. Yeah, that that's that's something that occurs to me that's possible. So unless you have trust in the universe, trust in yourself, trust in the system, then you're always going to be looking for why it's not going to work. What about your upbringing taught you that the universe was an unfriendly place? Well, growing up in an alcoholic household. My father was an alcoholic. Growing up, being black in Boston, yes, uh, it, puts, yes. it puts a lot of pressure. And you, you, you must a, have been around during the busing crisis. 
I was before the busing, but yes, but I've been around where if I saw a police officer and I got friends and family members of police officers back in that day, when you saw them, uh, they weren't there to really serve you. They were there to control you. And so it was a different relationship with, with, with police, not all, but some of them, because I had a neighbor that was a police officer. He was cool, but usually being black, you know, it's... You know, they wouldn't hesitate to shoot at you or do a lot of the stuff that's not allowed now. So because it was just, that's Although just the way it was. it's still happening. It's still happening, right. So so just the household and, you know, the fighting and all the stuff that goes on living in the inner city and seeing all the poverty and and the the hostility or the, the violence, you know, you... You'd be standing in the wrong place at the wrong time, or you know somebody's going to come by, and so I just had a lot of experiences where it wasn't a friendly universe for me. And I think other people, all you need is one experience at a at a certain age or with a certain intensity by a certain authority figure that imprints that on your memory. So I got to the point where I was to be seen, not heard, because if I spoke up, I got beat down. That's the kind of universe I lived in. I think you drew the logical conclusions given the circumstances presented to you. Right. And and I think it's incredible that after growing up in that atmosphere, dealing with the addictions that you had, that you are sitting here now with me having achieved the level of success you've achieved and having achieved the amount of inner stability you must have achieved given given your status in the meditation world. I think I think that is incredible. I really do. Yes. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I just see this just, you know, this, this other thing that I, that I like to talk about is I have this this philosophy that we all, let me put it to you this way. Um, Michelangelo was asked back in the day, how does he create these masterpieces out of these blocks of marble? Mm-hmm. And he said, all I do is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's mm-hmm. already there. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel. I have I have a masterpiece, and I I've been chipping away at it through this process, and it's reflecting itself. It's expressing itself, and we all have that masterpiece. And you know, depending on where you go, I grew up uh, Baptist, so "Be still and know" is kind of the mantra that I learned when I was growing up. I didn't understand it, but now I understand it. Is when you can go inside, and when you can turn within, and you start to listen to that still small voice which like our consciousness that knows there's, there's a masterpiece there. When we, access, when we access it, it's really powerful. We can see it as the eye of the hurricane. You know, if we know that that's there, how do we access it? Well, we access it by being in the moment, by allowing things to speak to us rather than interpret them all the time. That's how we create space. It's by saying, well, what is this? And I have some curiosity, some interest to see, oh, what is this? Oh, this is interesting. It changes it. So if I turn my pain in, or my the sensations of pain into interest, well, what is this? This is telling me something. There's something for me to get here. That totally changed my relationship to it. In order to do that, you need to learn to develop the lens of mindfulness. You need to train the mind yes. to see what to is happening To be in the right moment now. and to see what's happening and, and open it. So what am I asking? What did I ask myself to do? To be willing to, to see or to hear or feel or experience the present moment as it unfolds, not knowing what it's going to be. So I'm asking to embrace the unknown without knowing. Each moment is different. Each moment is changing all the time. So can I be present for it and and see it? And when I can be still and know, when I can be the eye of the hurricane, 
are more able to create space to just see what's happening, even if it's unpleasant or, you know, I have some memories about how awful it could be. If I can just see it and arise, the seeing, the being present to it just transforms. And then I see, oh, it's just this. Because once you understand something, it's not a mystery. Although there are some mysteries we can say, okay, it's a mystery. It's okay for it to be a mystery because it's beyond description. We can't write about it. We can point at it, but we really can't express it. It's like learning how to ride a bike. It's implicit learning. You can't explain it, but you can do it. When you first started walking into locker rooms with guys like Michael Jordan and talking about this stuff, how did that go down? Went down well because I talk about being in the zone or being in flow. They all know that. They don't understand it, but they know what it's like when, if you're a basketball player, the, the hoop is large and you just know what's happening before and you're a step faster and you got this flow and rhythm and you can do, you know, it just, it's sweet. It's really, it's like things are just flowing. It's almost like if you're driving down 7th Avenue and there's all these traffic lights and you're driving and you get a green light all the way all the way through. It's like, oh, this is sweet. You know, it's just happening. But you happen to be in the moment and flowing with it because you're accepting things as they are and, and simultaneously you're just rolling with it. It's like being in a current. You're just going with the current till you get to where you want to go and you ease off. It's, it's effortless. It's, you're allowing things to happen. But the challenge is if you try to get in flow, you won't get there. Well, that was what I was going to ask you, because how do you get into flow? I mean, I've been By the... trying not to get in flow. <laughs> <laughs> By just being present, and and there's there's some laws to that. And the laws are that you have to be challenged uh, a little bit beyond your comfort level. So you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So as you push yourself, your challenges are high, skills are high. That's when you get in a high state of arousal, which can be perceived by the novice as I made the wrong choice, or this is too much, and so you lower your your challenges, or you withdraw your energy, rather than saying, "Oh, I'm in high state of arousal," that if I just can have this relaxed receptivity and stay present to it, then I'll be in flow. See, because we spend most of our time between anxiety and boredom. Anxiety is when the challenges are high and skills are low. Boredom is when the skills are high and the challenges are low. So we, we control that. We can say, okay, if I'm not out of my comfort zone, I'm not growing. And how do I do that? And can you do it in a skillful way where you're pushing a little bit where it's, and this is consistent with the brain science. If you think about, there's a program called uh, Brain Fitness, and they talk about four, four tips for optimum um, brain growth or uh, neuroplasticity. First one is you have to have an oxygen level that's high enough because that's how it generates the new cells. Second thing, it has to be done in increments, so easy does it. Um, third thing is it's got to be doable but hard to do. It means you got to be out of your comfort zone. And the fourth thing is if you if you bring interest, if you're interested in it, then you actually stimulate the motivational circuits in your brain. But if 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 you if the key to being in flow or in the zone is not trying. How do you teach elite athletes to get into the zone by not trying? What do you, what is the, what do you actually do? Mindfulness, uh, the process of the power of mindfulness, as I talk about in my book, is a way of making yourself flow ready. Flow ready. Flow ready. So it's not about, and you don't know when it's going to happen. That's what makes it exciting on some level. You don't know, but if you Create the conditions. Create conditions and being mindful. And it's not just mindfulness in sport. It's the continuity of mindfulness. 
throughout. So we have to expand that. So it's really more about from moment to moment, can I be present and be aware of what's going on? And in that awareness, there's also this knowing or this intelligence that tells us, okay, what were we looking for? And when we see it, what are we getting? So that there's like awareness and knowing together or what we would call uh, mindfulness and wisdom. And wisdom could be information. It could be intelligence, you know, wise reflection, reflecting on, okay, so one plus one equals two. Okay, I know that. Then then there's the other, the third one, which is what you really want to get is with all of this, these practices, you want to have the experience of what the teaching is or what the law is. So that's what we call intuition or um, direct experience. So that's what we're trying to do. So all of these teachings, whatever I say, is not to believe it. It's to see if it's true in your own experience. And then when you see it's true, then that becomes a direct experience. It becomes a, you know, that's the highest form of, of wisdom is knowing because you see it and you know what it means. Um, uh, before we go further on, on, on the topic of you teaching um, athletes, just fill in a little bit of the chronology here. So you, you learned to meditate as a way, after you got clean, as a way to um, handle your physical pain. Right. And then how far did you go that? You became a, 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 you were, you were a therapist for a while, but then you became a, a, a meditation teacher. Yes. Well, after I left my, my job as a financial analyst, you know, I was living in a meditation center. And I, for you two lived years, in a meditation yeah, center? Yeah, yeah. I lived in a meditation Which center. Which one? I came with the type meditation center. Yeah, CIMC. Yeah, yeah. CIMC. You lived I lived there. Lived there for six years. Um, but studying or studying, you know, going to good teachings, you know, having interviews with teachers and everything. I, you know, I'm recovering perfectionist. <laughs> I don't do anything halfway. So you became a Buddhist? No, I. I, I but this is a Buddhist meditation center. Yeah, but the Buddha never used the word Buddhist. Well, where, that's where does true. that come from? So that is true. it's not about being a Buddhist or being in recovery. I mean, the first thing I had to learn when I was in recovery was to identify with being in recovery was problematic. Hmm. So I'm not a recovering addict or alcoholic. I'm just a person that doesn't drink and doesn't use alcohol. Now, some people think that was scary, but whatever you identify with, that becomes your limitation. Hmm. So to me, it's more about I was there to learn and teach and uh, to learn myself about the teachings, but I don't stay in a box. I still read a lot of psychology, philosophy, neuroscience. As you hear, I just read about everything, and it's not about being in a box. It's like I was there to learn, and I learned, and I taught retreats, um, sat retreats, a lot of them, three month silent retreat, you know, stuff like that. Um, I taught people from Yale to jail, locker rooms, boardrooms, doesn't matter. I just go. We get we get requests. I go out and I wherever people live, and I teach them how to be present. Now, I had to get skillful about that, not using the Buddhist language and not doing anything, but being able to meet people where they are and then talk to them about being present for life. So how did you end up hooking up with Phil Jackson? That's a very interesting story. So being in the the Cambridge Center, and I, when I quit my job, I didn't work for two years. So I just meditated and read and, and done a bunch of different things. And in that time... My mentor, uh, Larry um, Rosenberg, introduced me to John Kabat-Zinn, and so I went to John 
uh, to his clinic, and then I did an internship there. And then Can I we, just explain who those guys are. So yeah, Larry yeah. Rosenberg is an eminent Buddhist teacher, studied right. Zen, I believe, for many, right. many years. Right. He now runs Cambridge Insight Meditation right. Center. Right. John Kabat-Zinn is a former uh, microbiologist from MIT who really invented what's known as mindfulness-based stress That's reduction, right. which is a secularized version right. of Buddhist meditation, which has, in many ways, allowed for this huge uh, explosion of scientific research right. around meditation. Um, and uh, John uh, worked at the University of Massachusetts right. in Worcester, the medical school, and so that's where you must have done Yeah, and I project. worked there for five okay. years. Gotcha. I worked there as a prison project director where we taught meditation over 5,000 inmates and correction, you know, including the commissioner and everybody else would go through the program. Uh, so, you were teaching meditation in some inhospitable environments. Exactly. And I was in the hell realm, if I'm allowed to say that. In the hell realm. Yes. You were allowed to say that. Yes. That's okay. a, that is a, a Buddhist term. Yes, yes. So when I met him and I did the internship, we hit it off, and then we actually opened an inner city clinic in Worcester. This is you and John Kabat-Zinn. John, yeah, yeah. right. And so we, we, made, we wanted to have, act, have people from the lower economic part of our, our culture have access to some of these teachings because the main clinic, you know, if you really look at it, just like if you go to most Buddhist centers, is very homogeneous. You know, it's, you know, white, affluent, that type of it, thing. Whole food shoppers and NPR listeners. Yes, exactly. So that was back in the day. So we wanted to make it accessible to people. Still true. Yeah, still true. And so we set up a clinic. Uh, we don't have to get into it, but we actually provided childcare. It was free and, you know, um, we transportation and we did that and then I was working on my own going into a couple of prisons and teaching yoga and meditation and so when I did the three month this is really interesting when I did the three month course uh, I was living at the center so I left and when I came back from the three month course I went at, at, at IMS at CIMC I oh, did the IMS right so Insight Meditation Society let me just explain yeah. this again just for people yeah. so the yeah. three Insight Meditation Society is related to the CIMC in Cambridge Insight Meditation Society was founded by my meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein right. and also Sharon Salzberg who's a right. mutual friend of ours right. uh, and, and Jack Cornfield three eminent meditation teachers it's up in the boondocks in Barrie Massachusetts yeah. and um they every year they do this incredible thing, which is where people go there for three months in right. the middle of this society in which we live, which is so fast paced. People go there for three months, no talking except for uh, every other day to their meditation teacher, and they're meditating all day long every day. So you did that. I did that. Yes, I did a lot of sitting in those two years. You know, living at the center and doing a lot of retreats, ten days or whatever. And but anyway, so. When I came back from the three months retreat, there was a, a request for proposal or RFP where the Department of Corrections, Massachusetts Department of Corrections, wanted somebody to go in and teach meditation and yoga. And a couple of the um, um, uh, prisons. Uh, and so I, I bid on it and I won. And so I started doing a couple of programs for them. And then we partnered with John, and then we expanded it to make it bigger, and then that's when I started, you know, that I was already working in the inner city part of it, and then then we had the prison project as well, and then that's where I trained teachers, and we went in to, I think we had like seven different sites, and we had over 5,000 inmates go through it in a five-year period, but what happened was, I don't have to talk about it, but Governor Weld at the time wanted to get tough on crime, so he got rid of the program mm -hmm. as well as 
art programs and running programs, which were all shown to reduce recidivism. But it was a, t- a climate here where it was politically uh, politically motivated to act tough on on inmates. Mm. You know, and of course, the, you know, 90% of them get out at some point. So rehabilitation wasn't a priority. So that's how I got involved. So I worked at the Center for Mindfulness in those two programs, mostly the prison project, for five years. And and then how did Jackson, Phil Jackson enter the picture? Yeah, so working at the medical center, John Cabazin, Saki Santorelli, they, they do these programs off-site for clinicians. So they were doing a mindfulness-based stress reduction training at Omega Institute, which is in New York. And during that time, Phil used to have a program called Beyond, you know, Beyond Basketball. And it was a fundraiser for one of his ex-teammates, Eddie Mass, that he would do every summer. So while they were doing it, they were there together, and they started talking. Phil's wife, June, uh, Phil's wife at the time, June, was attending it, and they were showing pictures of, of the work that the center was doing, and they showed me, and then they talked about uh, me working with inmates and the fact that I roomed with Dr. J in college. So I've been you around. You roomed with Dr. J in I college? Did. Yes, he was my roommate in college. Which so. college? UMass, Amherst. <laughs> okay. So that's how I really got into it. So I, I used to play basketball, but I got injured, and that was a whole other thing, and that's where some of the pain came from. But I struggled. That's how I got into because I got the pain medication. That's how I got addicted was another way I got addicted because I was in crutches all the time. Yeah. I, I was injury prone. That's a whole other thing. But anyway, so Phil had this – well, he still does. He He's really – focus on the whole person as a basketball player and helping them, giving them resources so they can live. And they had just won their third NBA championship. This was 1993. This is the Bulls then? The Bulls. Yeah. And so he invited me to training camp in 1993, October 1993. And Michael Jordan, by that time, his father had gotten murdered and he had resigned from basketball. So he wasn't playing. So when I got there, they were in full-blown crisis. And so I had to go in and and not only teach them, because I was going in to teach them about the stress of success, because when you win three championships, you got everybody coming at you. It's a lot of stress. They want you to do these endorsements. And and he knew that they needed somebody to teach them how to deal with that, and that's why he had hired me. But then it expanded to more than that when, when, um, when the crisis arose. And the, so Michael, Mike was Michael when he left, because yeah. he was, you know, that was pretty much, you know, they wouldn't, kind of known as Michael Jordan and the Jordanaires. They weren't really, didn't have an identity. So they got better. He came back a year and a half later. And then then we, then we when he came back the next full season, that was 1996, which is pertinent to what's going on now because that team won 72 games and lost 10. And, of course, you know that the Golden State Warriors are in pursuit of that, of breaking that record, which is interesting because one of the players on that team, 96 team, is Steve Kerr who is the coach of the Warriors, and Luke Walton, who is his top assistant, who actually played with Phil and won championships in L.A. So so uh, that's how I got involved with Phil, and then that was 22 years ago, and we're still working together and creating things. And I, st- I understand the Golden State Warriors are meditating, right? Something. Yes, yes, yes. Actually, their, their four core values are joy, mindfulness, compassion, and competition. If you watch them play, you'll see those qualities, those values being expressed. 
As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So, so I just I just need to know more about when you when you walked into the Bulls locker room at that moment of crisis and you started suggesting something like meditation. How did that go down? I, like I said, like well, first of all, I approached it two ways. One way was I talked about being a spiritual warrior or being a warrior, like a samurai. You're going in that way, but also about the zone. They know what the zone is. They know what being in flow is. So when I talk about that, they're all ears. And did you actually have them sit and do formal yeah, meditation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they were cool with that? Yeah. And what was the practice? Walk me through the, on a granular it's, level. It's what the was same, the practice? It's the same drill I was doing anybody else. Get them to sit down and become aware of their body and breathing and talk about what we're doing and how it could be helpful in terms of being able to get flow ready or zone ready, whatever you want to call it. But it's really more about you got a crisis. How are you going to deal with this? You have to be able to create space so you can choose your response and not be reacting or not feel like everything's out of control. You have to collect yourself. And then so we came up with this concept of one breath, one mind. Phil talked about it in his book, 11 Rings. But that's what it was, is getting everybody to conspire together, <laughs> which is breathing together. It's not in a negative sense, but to become one and to work together. So, I, so, I, so that's what we did. So I, we'd sit, but I'd have a, a talk about certain concepts. Like, you know, one of the things Phil liked to use is the jungle book. The strength of the wolf is in the pack, and the strength of the pack is in the wolf. That's it. So you start talking to them about how the mind-body interacts. You know, you start talking about how you can, you know, slow time down when you when you create space between stimulus and response. Three seconds is, is an eternity. How how do you actually do that? When you talk about s- slowing down time, and I know you're being um, metaphorical here, but wh- when you talk about slowing down time and creating a, a buffer between stimulus and response, how do you do it? By the practice, by being able to create and connect with the eye of the hurricane and see that by observing things, what we call bare awareness or bare attention. So you're just noticing things in the bare thing because what happens in the percep- perceptual process when we perceive things, there's a very short period of time where we're just perceiving what's there. It's very short. And then right on to that, there's a... There's this idea of there's a perception of, of of what it is. You know, like say there's a sound, so it could be a fire engine. I say a fire engine goes by, 
So there's a way that the sound of the fire engine comes in and you're trying to meditate. You say, oh, why is that there? It shouldn't be there. And you make a noise. There's a way that you can just notice that sound is happening. So you can create it, create more space within the perceptual process so you can see more of what's there before the influx of associative thinking, um, self-reference, abstract thinking, what it means for the future. Oh, I remember this happened in the past. And then the whole idea of if it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and what that involves. If it's pleasant, you're going to move towards it. If it's neutral, I mean, if it's unpleasant, you're going to move away. If it's neutral, you're going to space out. So the idea is to be present so you can see the whole thing. And the analogy I like to use, you growing up in Massachusetts, you understand it. So you go to this one station where I take the bus there, and then, or you take the train, like say the Forest Hills, and then you got to run downstairs to get a bus. And you run downstairs, and in those days, there was nothing on the side of the bus. Where you were going was on the front of the bus. So you run up to the front of the bus, and you look, and you see the letter BR, you know, BR. Then you get on the bus. Then you get to where you're going, and you're saying, oh, I ended up in Bridgewater. I wanted to go to Brockton. (laughs) So what you want to do in the perceptual process is to go one more letter. So you see the BR, but instead of being in a hurry, you go to BR, there's I or O. C, you know, if it's O, C, K, you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing, and this is what we're doing from moment to moment. Can we see things as they are rather than based on what happened in the past? And we're seeing we're, we're living to a default future based on what we already know. So it's like when you learn something, there has to be this willingness to, to, to just be, let things speak to you without the interpretation, without the abstract thinking, without the... Um, uh, associative thinking, and self-interest or self-reference. That's the biggest one. What does this mean for me? How does this, what am I going to get out of this? And and can you just see it clearly? So you want to create space. So that's how it can be helpful that you start to see, okay, when I'm shooting a free throw, my elbow goes out, the ball goes a different thing. If I keep my elbow in, what are the two or three things I need to do? And it's like, okay, I missed that shot. So next time, use your legs. So it's more a monitoring aspect without self-reference, without I got to make this shot, other than no, just shoot. So you get it in front of people. It's how MJ can be at, be at the free throw line, shooting a free throw with 15,000 flashes going off at the instant he's letting the ball go. Well, walk me through again. How can he do that? Because I've always wondered. Because he is in the moment. He's just in his body. He, he, can, he, he doesn't see that. He, he can... Let it be there without making it a distraction. But if he was truly in the moment, he would notice all the flashes. No, no, too. being in the moment and and being mindful in the moment, it couldn't, it does, might not be. The, if when you're in the moment and you just know it, you're just in your body and you're just shooting, just like you're at practice. There's nobody there. You've trained your nervous system to do it. So now your conscious thinking needs to be quiet and let your body do what it does. It so doesn't he, matter. He's in the moment and he's focused. Yeah, so he's yeah. Not a wide open he, panoramic. No, no, awareness. no. It's more on what he's doing. Everybody else doesn't exist. Nothing exists but this moment and what you're doing. So the pr- actual practice you're teaching in the locker room, is it just the basic mindfulness practice of notice the feeling of your breath coming in and going out, and every time you get lost, start again? Is that what you're, Is that the basic teaching? Yeah, that's basic. But here's the interesting thing. So you become mindful. Then what? You got to be mindful. Then, then that mindfulness has to be aware. So you got to be mindful of what your intention is what you're doing, whether it's working or not. 
and mindful of what works, what doesn't work. That's what it's really about. Being mindful or developing that ability to be contemplative or to really, and to contemplate is to look closely or to look repeatedly at something. So you're looking at it with fresh eyes. You're letting it speak to you. And then with the mindfulness and then the clearly knowing or the the understanding develops. It's like the analogy I'll use is doing a jigsaw puzzle. So you're putting pieces together and then some of them don't work and you put them back. Then you come to a plate piece and you say, oh, I remember that. That's here. And then you put it there. Then you keep doing it with the mindfulness and the understanding or just knowing or getting data or getting information. And then you get enough of it. Then you see the full picture. Then you put that aside. You get something else. So it's all about wisdom. It's all about understanding how things work. But a me- meditation in and of itself is not going to make you faster or jump higher or have a better golf swing, right? No, but when you come from that quiet place, you know what you need to do to get it based on who you are. So quickness isn't the issue. Maybe the issue is being where the ball is going to be rather than having to react to right, it. Right, but actually, because right. you see people when they when they play the outfield or whatever, if they're just fully in their body and just fully present, their body knows where to go. So it's like in, in the book, uh, The Inner Game of Tennis, he talks about self one and self two. Self one is the conscious self that's the words of the song. Self two is the melody. Self one is is dominating everything, and you got to be still and know or quiet it down so that your natural intuition, your natural knowing is able to But how do you know. how do you quiet it down? Because I, I hear this all the time from people. Yeah, yeah. People say to me, Dan, I get it. You're out there evangelizing for meditation. The science suggests it's good, but you don't understand in fact, I had a guest on recently, Amy Cuddy, who's a, a, a social psychologist at Harvard Business School, right. who is obviously an incredibly smart woman who doesn't meditate. Why? Because she says, I can't turn my mind off. Yeah, People but see, but that's the, 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 that's the crux of the problem. You're not trying to turn your mind off. You're trying to create space and let your mind be. It's like in Zen mind, beginner's mind, the best way to, to control cows is how to give them more space. So when you're trying to do something, meditation is not trying to go anywhere or do anything. Meditation or being present is just seeing what's there and letting it speak to you. So the feeling of your breath, the noises going through the room. Yeah, it could be it could be anything. Just sitting there and just letting it know. But if you're saying, okay, my she's got the wrong idea. The idea of meditation is is to stop thinking or to slow your mind down. That's not what the thing is. The the goal is to be present to what is. So if you got all these thoughts that are Negative or negative self-talk, can you create space where you can observe it, let it speak to you without being identified with it? But now i got to ask you a question, which is a selfish question, because I've been meditating for nearly seven years, which right. isn't a long time, but it's, you know, not nothing. Right. And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm getting better at doing what you're describing when I'm actually meditating. In other words, when I'm actually meditating, I do a reasonably good job of letting whatever comes up, you know, that's, my thinking, right. my sensations, right. whatever the noise is, just letting it be there without right. reacting to it. However, I am not a clutch player. And when I'm under pressure, when I'm under pressure a lot because I'm on live television right. or that's I get right. up and speak that's to right. people, the voice in my head ramps up. You know, you, you did you comb your hair? You know, um, uh, are you prepared for this? You're going to sound like an idiot, whatever it is. It's all yap, that's yap, what, yap. That's right. But you control that. I don't feel like I control it. Yeah, because you let it do what it does. Well, And it's based on your belief system. It's based on how you're seeing things or how you're expecting things. It's just playing out the scenario based on your beliefs. So what do I do about that? Change your beliefs. 
<laughs> so just tell my Stuart Smalley like look in the mirror and tell no, myself I'm so awesome. So just or? like you tell yourself you're not going to do a good job, you can tell yourself it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And remember when you did it the last time and you worried about it, I say don't worry till you have to. We worry before, and we don't just worry. We play out the scenarios of what the worry, what the consequences of the bad of the the way things are going to go. We play that out. Yeah, but I believe that my internal anguish is what allows me to be successful. Well, good luck with that one. <laughs> you know, because it's a razor's edge. Because it, what it does, it gives you energy. But you can get energy from love and joy and compassion. How do you talk about love and joy and compassion? In a, in a locker room full of... Don't be hating. Don't be hating. Don't be hating. That's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> you got to talk to who you're talking to. They yeah. understand that. Don't be hating. And does it work? Yeah, it Because works. these guys, they, they have to do some... I don't know if hating is the right word, but they're certainly going to feel not necessarily love and compassion and joy for their opponents. But see, here's the key. They're not competing against them. They're competing against themselves. Uh. So when you're focused on being better than you were, or being better today than you were yesterday, the enemy is within. It's not out there. Because if you're feeling good about yourself and you know you're doing the best you can, what's happening out there has nothing to do with you. Not your business how, like, how Dan feels. I might be concerned about it, but I can't control that. What I can control is me and allowing Dan to be any way he needs to be because he's making a choice on some level. Even if it's unconscious, even if it's involuntary. So this is what it's about. It's about starting to see how we're thinking. And that inner voice, that's really important. Can we, can we, the inner talk, can we change it that, so it's consistent with our goal? Or oh, this is going to be great. Or this is going to be, you know, and even if I make a mistake, it's like if you're playing a guitar and you hit the wrong note. If you keep playing, no one will notice. Mm -hmm. And then you say, okay, you did mentally note. Okay, that was wrong note. Then you go out and you practice. So you get that part because it's saying to you, you need to practice that. You need to get that more, you know, uh, you, get, you just need more skill development in that area. So if we approach it that way, it's not a problem. In my, I'll tell you, I, I tape all my talks and everything. At first, I hated the sound of my voice, and I'd have all of these self-talk. And then at some point, because I was doing this stuff and I stopped paying attention, I realized... Man, that's pretty good. Where'd that come from? <laughs> so, 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 but I have that space just observing it as an observer, not as my voice. Oh, that's, that's me. But can I just listen to it like I would listen to anybody else and not judge? But just, and then that's what mindfulness is. It's not judging. It's just, just noticing what's going on and, and learning from it, letting it speak to you. So we're interpreting things all the time. We're not really hearing what's there. We're interpreting it based on what we already know. And so part of this is, to have the vulnerability to not know and to just see what is. So these these legends that you taught, guys like Shaq and, and um, Kobe and Michael Jordan, are they still meditating? Some of them, I, I don't know. I know Kobe is. I don't know about the others because I didn't ask him, but Kobe volunteered that. I don't really get into that. But mindfulness is not just, see, Dr. Dre has a definition for mind, uh, for meditation. I have my mind on money, money on my mind. <laughs> so whatever is on your mind is what your meditation is. That's what it is, what we call it, right thinking. So if you have thoughts of compassion, thoughts of seeking wisdom, thoughts of love, thoughts of curiosity, well, then then that that 
So your intention follow your attention follows intention. You don't have to believe me. Just check it out. Sometimes we're looking at things and we don't know what our intention is. But if we say, okay, I'm looking at this, therefore my intention is X. Oh, if I change my intention, then what I'm observing is going to change. So William James talked about this hundreds of years ago about the the, the self will or this idea of free will is choosing what we're going to hold in mind. Because there's things going through, but we can choose to hold something in mind longer than it would ordinarily stay by the act of will. And it's a practice. That's why we call it a practice. So we want to go from the cushion, off the cushion. So you can always be in your body if you're walking, if you're standing, or you're sitting. You can feel what your body feels like. You can breathe a little bit and just pay attention to what you're doing. If I reach for the water, just feeling that, not thinking about it. But if I just think water, the hand goes. If I think about my right palm, where's your attention go? Left palm, left foot, bottom. So, but we don't train that. We don't recognize that we have that power to choose. And there's certain themes that are conducive to wholesomeness, like loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic, sympathetic joy. Like, okay, so the opposing team wins. So you hate them and all that. that that's jealousy. But what if you say, okay, they earn that. Good for them. Now, or you're not a true fan. No, you're a human being. That's what it is. Because what if your son was on that team? Would you want people to hate him because he's on an opposing team? Or would you want them to appreciate that he earned that victory or he earned what he got? That we all are heir to what we, we get. So our intentions, you know, we're creating things. But we don't have that understanding that we create the world. The world out here is just a reflection of our inner life. So if you're playing the inner game, then what you express it's going to be, it can be in line with that. So if you want to be compassionate and you're talking to somebody in the inner dialogue and say, what a jerk, or, you know, I don't, you know, you know, I don't like him or her. You got to change that and say, okay, that's judgmental. Are they a human being just like me that we're connected? Even though I have this illusion of separateness, we're the same. We're human beings and we're trying, we all want to be happy. We all want to be successful. We all want to experience grace and ease. But because of ignorance, we don't know how to do it. And then when we don't do it, we want to play the blame game. Some person plays a thing when in actuality we're making choices. That if we can understand the choices we're making, then we can change it. And I'll give you this little formula that um, that Gandhi expressed. Your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values. Your values become your destiny. So you can go in and change any of those things. So, And we don't even know we have belief systems, so sometimes we got to work backwards. Based on what I'm thinking, this must be the, the paradigm from which I'm operating from. And so what we want to do is, and then we have paradigm blindness because we have a paradigm, and we don't even know it's there. It's like glasses. We get on the heat glasses, and we don't even know we have on glasses. Mm -hmm. But we can take them off, put on the love glasses. So this is what the, it's all about, transforming the mind, making the mind our friends, but also making the mind based on this idea that we're all connected and that, you know, we all want peace. And so can we, can we have the mind see clearly when we're causing suffering for ourselves, when we're causing suffering for others? So by knowing that, then we can reverse and say, okay, I want to create happiness. So then I create happiness for others. And, 
you know, Sean Accord's book, The Happiness Advantage, and his work, 90% of long-term happiness is predicated on how the brain interprets our experience. 90%. So if you interpret it based on goodness, based on uh, wisdom, the opposite of greed is generosity or love, you know, hatred or ill will, love and kindness, goodwill, confusion, clarity, wisdom. If we're cultivating or we have those qualities of mind, if we have those attitudes, then what we see, what we do, what we feel is going to be very different. You had a lot of luck teaching the Lakers and the Bulls to put the love glasses on, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, they did really well. You're now working with the Knicks. You came in, uh, Phil Jackson took over the Knicks as GM right. at a time when the Knicks, they weren't performing that well, and so you guys, you're working with in a tough situation. How is that going? It's going the way it's going. My job is the same, whether they're winning or not help them be present and and make wise choices. And so there's a lot of teams I work with that aren't as successful as the ones you know about. But the idea is it takes it takes as long as it takes to transform or to create a, a, a foundation and a structure. So here's what I said last year, and I think it's the same this year. My experience of going to the Knicks is that, you know, we go in and, you know, it's like buying a house. You go in and there's a there's a crack in the ceiling or a crack in the a wall, and you're repairing the cracks in the, and you keep getting them. And then you realize, okay, so let's go see what's in the basement. You go in the basement and you realize the foundation is off. So you're working on the foundation, and people go by and say, well, there's still a crack there. There's still this there. Well, that's because the foundation is still being settled. Unless you fix the foundation, you're just addressing symptoms and not the cause. And so sometimes when you have to redo the foundation, it takes longer. It takes as long as it takes. And so you have to you have to have the right effort, which is a continuous application of poised energy. It's like so we keep we're working at it and we're continuing to move forward. And sometimes it doesn't feel like anything's being done, but it's being done. It's just that it, it has its own rhythm and pace. And so the question is, are the fans in New York going to be willing to have patience and trust that it's going to get there, but it's going to take time. And so when people say, oh, you must be having a difficult time, whatever, I said, no, it's all good. If it's, you know, if they're winning or not, it's the same drill. Can you be present and, and can you create space so that you're making more informed decisions are you, and you're living in a way according to how things are? And that's where, you know, the truth shall set you free or, you know, so you get that. But being present in the moment, whether it's painful or unpain or or uh, helpful, if it's painful or painless, it's still the same drill. Be present for it and learn from it and then understand that that's ultimately what we're here to do is how can we alleviate suffering? How can we use what's here? Because reality is not everybody's going to win a championship. It's not going to happen. But if you can walk off the court and say you gave everything you gave and you were fully present, you did the best you can, that's a winner. Not in the eyes of the fans who— Well, uh, that's that's fine. But at the same time, when you see a team playing hard and giving all they got, because I had this experience with a BC basketball team, we lose by 40, but you can't be mad at them because they gave you everything they had. Yeah, and so what you're asking of, of your team now, the Knicks, is just to give everything you have— in a yeah. present-minded way. Yeah, I had this, and of course you being from Massachusetts, you'll get this. I was teaching, I was giving a talk at the Cambridge Center 
this was probably 2000, and there was a fan there that said, how am I going to deal with being a Red Sox fan? We haven't won a champion, you know, a World Series in umpteen million years and this and that. And I said, why don't you just focus on being a good fan? Just focus on, you know, what it means to be a fan and to support your team and accept them. Because this is what we do. We have conditional love. <laughs> you know, we love you only if you do what I want. Instead of saying, no, love is unconditional. Just just be a fan. Just enjoy the game and just support them and, and hope that they get better. Well, a year later or two, they won a championship. He probably thinks I'm a genius. But I didn't know that. I just know that being present and being in the moment, everything's going to turn out okay. You're going to be okay or you'll have peace with what what turns out. But we have this idea that it's conditional. If I do this only if that happens, instead of saying, no, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's just be present and do the best I can. Do what I know to do today. Manage this moment, and then that will affect the next moment. Manage this day. It will affect the next day. And so that's, I mean, a lot of people want to hear a formula, but it's really that simple. It's just just letting things speak to you, learn from them, and keep Keep learning. Keep uh, keep getting. Uh, you keep putting that puzzles together. I want to go back to something we were discussing before, uh, and I was talking about how remarkable it is that you ended up in the in the mindfulness world, given everything that had come before for you. I mean, it's not so surprising that I ended up in mindfulness. I mean, I was born on third base. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, my parents listened to NPR. They're doctors, right. you know. So not I said they sent me to yoga class when I was five. So right. no big deal that I ended up in in meditation. But we are in this situation where, in in my analysis at least, the the mindfulness and meditation world, uh, despite some very well intentioned effort by uh, high high ranking people in the field, is mostly white mm-hmm. and mostly upper middle class. Mm-hmm. How do we change that? That's that's something that people ask me all the time, and and that's one of my goals is just to make it available to everybody, not just in the inner city. But in the rural areas, in the Indian reservations, mm-hmm. uh, all the other countries um, on this planet, uh, it's it's just doing what we need to do and just educating, putting the word out. There's a way of being, and I think sports is a way of of enhancing it because people love sports, and I think it's one of the things where we have to sit and talk about how we're going to do that, how we're going to have an impact on. On more people. I mean, one of the things I'm doing is working with a, you know, working with this company to develop an app for 14 to 18 year old basketball players, and then you know, writing a book about mindful athletes for teens. You know, just, you know, some of the ways I'm thinking about doing it. But we gotta, we gotta, you know, it's like the gospel is spreading the good news. We have to give people. A vision of possibility that, yeah, you can be a little bit more awake, just being mindful and let's see what happens. Let's just trust, being present, and that if we can let everybody release the the divine spark or the masterpiece within them, I think that's the biggest thing is, is to get people to recognize that they have that and that we need to develop that. And and we need to not just well, who's in the meditation halls, but there's a lot of people who are, who are live and who are present that don't meditate. Because there's their nature, they're so focused on what they're doing. That's what we need to be be expand what it means to mindfulness. What you said it means, Michael Jordan's like that. Yeah, what it means to be fully present. When you see people doing what they're really good at, they're usually really focused mm-hmm. and concentrated. Mm-hmm. But they don't know how to take that love for that. And I talk about it sometimes. Take the love of the game 
to what you're doing because the love of the game isn't the game. It's coming from you. So if you access that love, you can take that to wherever you go. So it's more about to ask the question. I don't have an answer, but to ask the question is kind of to know the answer because now you start thinking about, okay, we need to do that. Let's think about it. Let's reflect on it. And then the answer will come, and some people will do it in their own way, and at some point, hopefully it'll it'll get generate a critical mass. That's why mindfulness is exploding now. So it's happening. It's not as fast as we would like, but we can accelerate it by being embodying, by modeling what an awake person or what it means to be awake in the sense not fully awake where you're where you're, you know, awakened to, you know, Nirvana or whatever, but I being just being a little bit more awake. Like you talk about your book, ten ten percent happier. That, that's that's significant. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even two yeah. percent, it makes a big difference. For sure. So it's like that old uh Hokey Carmichael song song, slow motion gets you there quicker or faster, that's what it is. If we just have to do the day-to-day, planting the seeds like Johnny Appleseed, you throw them around and they're going to take root where there's sunlight and soil is good and, and there's, you know, uh, moisture. And we just got to trust that that's enough for now. And then if we can focus on certain things, like I think we need to get our youth before ISIS gets them. Mm-hmm. So we have to have them understand that they have tremendous resources and how do we get them so they can say no to that because they see that that's against their values. We have to talk more about values. We have to talk more about what it means to be a human being and and people who are unaffected or marginalized because they look at di- their different skin color or they have a different religion. We, we have to start realizing what the consequences of that discrimination how it affects people and people are isolated and they're feeling separate. We got to create more of a holistic or more of a communal feel to what we're doing. Before we close, I want to get a sense of what is your daily practice? When do you do it? What are you doing? How are you sitting? Yes. Yes. That's a very good question. 24 seven. It's my daily practice. So when, when I wake up in the morning, I'm in my body, I'm feeling my body, I'm breathing. I'm recognizing, okay, what's my energy level like? Oh, I could sleep a little bit more or I'm just jumping up because I'm excited to do something. And then just really understanding what lens am I observing my experience with? Moment to moment, I can be aware of how I'm seeing things, what I'm thinking about. So it's this inner, this journey of just checking in, you know, what I'm feeling, you know, what is my self-talk, you know, how am I seeing things? So it's really about being able to sit and and to read uh, uh literature or to remind myself about, you know, what this practice is about, what mindfulness is. So I study a lot. I read books. But mostly it's just reflecting on, you know, what if I become a a channel of love? What if I can just meditate on love and let love flow through me? And when the thought of Dan or someone comes to me, I can send them love. Or if it's somebody who is challenging, I can send them forgiveness. Or may they be happy. So there's a lot of things we can do, but it's really from day to day, to day moment to moment, reminding myself that whatever posture I'm in, I can feel my body and I can feel my breath. Do you have a formal practice that you yeah, do? Yeah, I do formal and informal, but I don't separate them. How how long is your formal practice? Every Depending day? on how much time I have, I might be able to sit for 
for half an hour, if I'm lucky, 45 minutes, but sometimes 10 minutes here, then 10 minutes there. So it's, you know, sometimes it's doing my qigong or my tai chi, or sometimes it's just doing my stretching. Sometimes it's doing my walk. And some a lot of times it's just, you know, maybe writing my journal and just reading about the practice. We're reading things that talk about being present, what talks about um, how this mind-body process works. You know, so reading about, like, the neuroscience, understanding how we can retrain the brain, how we create and do neural nets. But my practice is... So formally, it's it's not a lot of t- lot of time. If I if I could squeeze in an hour a day, that would be great in terms of sitting. But in terms of moving and and just being, you know, like being able to change my mind from from like anger or frustration to you know what we call right mindfulness is just altering the mind. Is really more about me getting clear about. My, my attitudes, what's my perspective, how am I seeing things, and why am I seeing things a different way? So sometimes it's not just being in silence. It's trying to get some information about how I'm seeing things or why I'm seeing things a certain way or or the fact that my mind is distracted. That's all part of the practice. It's, it's distracted. It keeps thinking about this one theme. What's up with that? And then maybe to turn towards that and why am I so upset or so concerned about this issue and then go deeper and think about, well, what is this about? And so there's a, so there's a lot of ways of doing it, but it's really as simple as just really, you know, if I just measure, you know, how much faith do I have? When I was writing my book, it's like I never had faith. Faith in what? Exactly. Why do you want my book? There's all these books out there. I can't write a book. Who am I? The awfulizing, you know, the, yes, yes. the judge, you know, the critic. And then I said, okay, well, what Einstein said, said, he said, you know, is this a friendly universe or unfriendly? I said, oh, it's friendly. And, well, okay, so what are the laws? The, the laws are if I focus on what I want and what I want to create, how I want to serve, I can't hold that thought in mind and the same thought that, you know, I can't do this. It's too hard. It hurts. It's unpleasant. So I focus on what I can control, what I can do, and that is my attitude and my effort. I can always control those. Are you trying in your practice to become enlightened, and what do you think that even means? It's interesting. It's kind of like, here's how I, I see it. That's my ultimate goal, but it's like everything else. When you set a goal, like to be enlightened or to do a marathon or whatever, you set the goal, but then you focus on the journey. So it's like you can be zone ready, you can be enlightenment ready. That's what I'm talking about. So, yes. So, yeah, that's the ultimate is I want to go, I want to be fearless. What do you, what do you, what do you think about enlightenment? What do you think enlightenment means? Enlightenment, enlightenment, or I like the word awakening, means that I'm fully awake and I can see things and I can experience things without the greed, the hatred, the delusion, that I could just see things as they are and have that equanimity and compassion and love. So it's like being fully present with no, just being okay with things as they are, not needing them to change, even seeing suffering and realizing, uh, you know, I can have compassion for the person suffering, but also knowing that life is suffering. And to you, is this just an ideal, or have you ever actually met anybody who meets these criteria? I'm, I've I've seen some people. I've read about people who who have uh, who are obviously um, 
more advanced. You know, I met the Dalai Lama, obviously, and some other folks, and they have an energy, they have a spirit. And I read about them. I, you know, I have photographs of of um, mendicants or monks that that are in deep concentration, and and I study. I read about the Buddha and stuff like that, and I reflect on the qualities. So it's more about identifying with their qualities than the person themselves, but because they are like us, we have Buddha nature. We have the we're wired for enlightenment. So whether it happens or not, it's another thing. But the more I try to be enlightened, the, the less I'll be enlightened. I learned that just like writing a book. Once I stopped trying to write a book, it wrote itself. So there's something about forming the intention and then allowing it to happen. The Dalai Lama was our first guest on this podcast, and he told me he thought my meditation practice was still in its very early stages. So I got that going for me. Okay, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he has, but that he has a formula in his tradition what it means. But ultimately, I think, you know, there's a book, it's called Chop Wood and Carry Water. Before enlightenment, we chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, we chop wood and carry water. Mm-hmm. But the, but you're not identified with this, this sense of self or, you know, experiencing fear and that sort of thing. So I have moments where there's fearlessness. But I'd say I'm just trying to deal with the moment and the teachings about the, the factors of enlightenment. You know, I try to study that and, and do that stuff. But I don't really see it like I have to do that or, you know, my life is going to be ruined. It's more like, yeah, I'm on the path. I'm learning how to be more mindful, how to gather more intelligence or, or more wisdom as I go along. And and right now is. You know, that's enough. You know, when I go on retreat and I reflect on things, I think about enlightenment and stuff like that. But I don't, it's it's a goal, but it's not something I'm focused on. Because if I'm focused on that, I'm not here. Like I tell people all the time, if you're focused on how you're doing, you're not focused on what you're doing. And to me, what you're doing, but it's okay to have it out there. Just like I feel like I may be different because I feel like I have to measure my practice. I have to monitor it. Am I getting better or am I not? So the five spiritual powers are one way to measure your practice. Do I have more trust? Am I, do I have more wisdom? Am I making the right effort with the poise, you know, with a centeredness? Am I being more mindful? How can I de- develop more mindfulness? How can I, because the secret is the continuity from moment to moment. And I'm not able to do that 24-7, but that's the intention. And if I'm mindful for 24-7, I'll be enlightened. George Mumford, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Really appreciate it. The book is called The Mindful Athlete. Um, after having followed your work for so many years, it's just very gratifying to finally meet you. So thank you for thank coming you. on. All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.